Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. My name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant, and uh, today I'm going to continue in our series uh, in the book of Galatians. Uh, Last week, Kyle thoroughly laid out two sort of ditches um, as he laid them out. Uh, On the one side, uh, in our Christian walk, it's easy to fall into the ditch of legalism or trying to uh, focus on the things that you do in order to, to have a right standing with God. And on the other side, we have licentiousness or kind of dismissing some of the not-so-good things that we do and hoping it makes us okay anyway. And so Kyle laid those two out. I'm not going to go too heavy into that. But today, the reason I mention it is um, while it's one thing to be aware of the ditches and know where you tend to go, it's another thing to how do I stay straight on the path? Um, and so today we're going to be asking that question. How do I stay straight on the path? Have you ever seen a pair of drunk goggles. Um, They look kind of like this, almost like a scuba mask or something. Um, Essentially, different driver eds programs, I think is pretty widespread, um, will have you wear these goggles as a part of your driver's education. And what it does is it simulates intoxication. It blurs your vision in a a weird way. I remember when I was in driver's ed, um, we uh, we had a map, or not a map, a, uh, a maze. Uh, just a paper, a simple paper maze on our desk, and it was double-sided. They were both the same thing, and with a pen, you just do the simple maze, and okay, not too hard, right? Okay, flip it over, now put the mask on, <laughs> the goggles, and it was like virtually impossible. Uh, and it's just, it, I remember doing it and laughing so hard. I was like, I, this is easy, I just did this, and now I can't even do it at all. Um, obviously, there's lessons to be learned. Don't drive intoxicated, um, because who knows what the road situation will be. But what's my point? As I said, it's one thing to be aware of where not to go. It's another thing to actually walk that out and stay straight on the path. I knew the maze. I just did it. And even aware of how to get from point A to point B, I still couldn't do it because my vision was blurred. I was blinded and distorted. Um, And so it's, it's different unless we get to the root of the matter of, um, of our distorted ways that we see the world. Um, we're not going to see clearly enough to find ourselves walking straight. Because even if you avoid the ditches, it's one thing to be walking straight and confidently and another thing to be stumbling from side to side. And so that's kind of where we're going to today. And uh, to help us get there, we're going to continue in the book of Galatians in chapter 2. Um, where we're going to watch Paul address some distorted behavior. Um, Before we read, I'll give a little bit of context. Um, Paul is a missionary church planter. Um, And his life and ministry, he goes to different uh, areas and is planting churches. Uh, And you can read about some of these different churches that he planted in his his journeys in the book, book of Acts. Um, one of those regions that he goes to, and many scholars believe, is this southern region uh, of, called Galatia, um, and it's kind of where modern-day Turkey is. 
And you can read about those different churches in Acts 13 and 14. And I mention that because I just think it's cool that you can actually read about the things that Paul's doing. And then these letters are like not just random letters, they're like to those specific peoples. I just think it's cool. Um, but with, as with many of Paul's letters, um, the book of Galatians is a letter to those specific churches in that region um, sometime later as they are growing as a new church and as they um, encounter challenges. And so this is meant to be instruction. But unlike many of Paul's letters, uh, this one, Paul is a little bit hot. He's a little spicy with his language. He's upset. Um, and he's primarily addressing this issue of certain Jewish Christians who have kind of come in after Paul to these different churches and are like adding conditions to the Gentile, the non-Jewish converts in order to follow Christ. They've essentially come in after Paul and said, yeah, Paul, that guy, he was well-intentioned, he's all good, um, but he kind of left some stuff out. And so here's what you need to do if you really want to follow Jesus. And uh, Paul's not super happy about that because uh, it's not true. And so the reason this is important, and I go into so much detail um, is because as Paul references the beginning of chapter 2, before what we're going to read, um, as sort of a defense to his authority and the completeness of his message that he has uh, set out with these churches, uh, Paul references a meeting um, that happened with like the, the head honcho apostles, like Peter, all the way uh, in Jerusalem. And you can read about that meeting in the book of Acts as well, which I also think is cool. Um, and the purpose of that meeting was they established... Um, at a certain point, and they agreed that Jesus' death and his resurrection applied to all, and not just Jewish um, people, but it applied to everyone. And so therefore, non-Jewish believers who were beginning to follow Jesus didn't need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. They didn't need to take on extra Jewish things in order to be integrated into the family of God. Jesus took care of that and kind of leveled the playing field. Everybody enters into the family of God um, on the same level ground, which is great for us today, actually, because I don't know about you, but I believe most of us are not of uh, traditional Jewish heritage, and yet here we are in the family of God. So that's an important um, thing for us. But this is precisely what the Jewish Christians back in Galatia, that region, they're contradicting. Um, and Paul isn't happy about it. And in fact, the next story that he tells after reflecting on that specific decision in that meeting in Jerusalem, as he continues his defense, he tells a story where he calls out the apostle Peter in front of everybody at a dinner table about this very same um, contradiction. And so we're going to pick it up there in Galatians 2, verse 11. When Cephas, which is another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I told you he's a little spicy here. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews then joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew 
and yet you live like a Gentile, not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So what's going on here? There's Jewish and there's Gentile Christians. They're all gathered for a meal, and they're happily eating together. And then Paul says certain men came who may be a little more legalistic in their beliefs and practices. And Peter, who's happily eating with Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, begins to not so subtly adjust his seating arrangement and sit somewhere else for fear that these other people might judge him for fellowshipping and being so close and eating with these Gentile, lesser, icky Christians. It's, it's racism. <laughs> it's flat-out racism is what happens here. He, he segregates himself. And so he does this. And to be partly fair... This, this sort of separation is actually really deeply rooted um, in Old Testament and ancient Jewish uh, traditions and practices in ceremonial and dietary laws where you think of things like uh, certain animals are they're considered unclean. Um, this is a very deeply rooted part of the ancient Jewish culture, um, and it had a purpose um, to to display both to the Jewish people themselves and to the, the neighboring cultures around them that this is what God is like. God is separate. God is holy, and so be holy like I am holy. And so there was a purpose to that. But then when Jesus came, God wasn't separate anymore from in that same way. Uh, the Holy Spirit came and was in all of us, and now the veil is torn, and there's a different way of relating to the world. And so that's important because it was actually even Peter, back in Acts, what are we reading, Galatians or Acts? Um, back in Acts, Peter actually had a vision from God at a certain point where uh, God lays out all these unclean animals and says, uh, eat, eat, eat these animals. And Peter says, well, no, that's not how this works. No, we're not supposed to, we don't eat those. And this is after Jesus, and God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Go and eat. Um, and he's specifically talking about Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. Like, go be, go be with the people. I, I'm, I'm we're going to go reach people now in a different way. Um, and then the story that follows is Peter, wait for it, eating with Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. And so it's interesting that that story happened and now here we are with Peter later, and he's separating himself again because he's afraid of these certain people. What's the point? There's no one unclean in Christ. That's not a thing. But Peter is acting as if that were true. He's being a hypocrite. He's acting one way, and then he's acting another in order to uphold a reputation with a certain group of people. And I'm sure none of us have ever acted one way and then another uh, to become more likable to a certain group of people. I'm sure none of us have ever had that experience before. But that's what's going on here at this dinner table. And so Paul continues his explanation. We'll pick it back up starting again in verse 14. He says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then now that you're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. 
we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person's not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, not the things we do. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, because of Jesus, our heritage does not give us a leg up with God. We are not a part of God's family because of our heritage. We are part of God's family because of Jesus and nothing else. And that's the same for us, and it's the same for a non-Jewish person. We're all on the same level playing ground. And he uses this big Bible word, justification. Um, it's a big Bible word. We don't use that word a lot. It's kind of a legal word. You think of like the justice system uh, in the courts. It's literally a declaration, uh, justification. It's, it's a declaration, like the act of a judge pronouncing a person not liable um, to penalty for things alleged um, to be done. It's a declaration. So while it's partly true that Jesus makes us clean, uh, the reason Paul uses brings this big Bible word into it is that it's, it's not totally complete that Jesus makes us clean and therefore all our sins and our bad habits like are just gone and go away. We, they still exist at this point in history. And so Paul uses this justification language to communicate that though we deserve condemnation and though we, those things still exist within us, we are declared justified because of Jesus. We're not acceptable to God because we actually become totally righteous and then he accepts us. We become actually righteous as a process because God has already said, you're acceptable because of Jesus. It's, it's flipped, it's different. And so last week, again, I mentioned the ditches. Um, to say what we said last week in just slightly different way, just using justification language, on the legalistic side of things, we can be self-justified. So we justify ourselves because of the, the things that we do, and so we're good. Or, on the other side, you can be justifying the things that you do as, eh, it's fine, it's good, and you hope that you're good. Or, in the middle, you're justified by Jesus and what he's done. You're self-justified by the good things that you do, you're justifying the not-so-good things that you do, or you're justified because of the things that Jesus did, and that's it. And so that's the center of the road here. Whether you're a rule follower or you're a rule bender, our only hope, Paul is saying, is in submitting to the rule and the reign of Jesus as the only one qualified to save us and make us whole. And so both sides are a ditch, but how do we stay on this path? Because it's one thing to, to, to say that, but then what does that actually look like in our day-to-day -day life? How does that affect my Tuesday afternoon, you might ask? And so we're going to go back to what Paul said specifically in verse 14, because here's where it starts to get really practical and really kind of beautiful. Um, and so I know that's been a lot of work to get to this point, but stick with me. I think this is going to get really helpful. Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 2, um, he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. 
Uh, Paul's primary beef, his, his issue with what Peter's doing, is not just his behavior. It's not what he's doing that's, that's the issue. Paul sees that there's a reason he's doing it underneath what he's doing, and it's, it's messed up. It's messed up. It's, it's a lie that Peter's believing. It's not just that Peter's being rude or impolite. It's that he's not in line. He's, he's misaligned internally in his heart with the truth of the gospel. It's not unlike the tires on your car. I don't know if I can get through a sermon without talking about cars in some way, but here we go. Um, have you ever had an alignment done to your tires? Um, or you've heard of this. There's an adjustment on your tires, it's called camber, where they can, they can tilt the lean of the tire one way or another. Um, in NASCAR, it's like strategic to lean them a certain way because when you're only making left turns, like you may as well just have it cocked that way. Um, so that's a whole thing. And, and you want it to be in line because if on a passenger car, if, if your tire is too much leaning one way or the other, it causes excess wear because of the friction on the road on like one part of the tire, on this part or on that part. And so you want it to be aligned so that the tire wears evenly when it comes up against the friction of the road. Literally, over time, if your tire is misaligned, the shape of the tire changes. It becomes misshapen and can risk a blowout. We are to bring everything in our lives in alignment with the truth, with the direction of the gospel. Otherwise, our lives become misshapen. The gospel, the, the truth, the direction of the gospel is radically opposed to the, assumption of the, the assumptions of the world. There's friction. There's friction there. And yet we live in the world, and it's so easy to just embrace that misaligned view of how the world works. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, this is the Christian life. The Christian life is a continual realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. So here's what I want to zoom in on today. How is Paul doing that here in his uh, opposition to Peter? Because he's not just calling him out just to be mean. <laughs> he's realigning Peter in, with the truth of the gospel. Paul focuses on the root of the matter, not just the behavior itself. Because so, Paul could have said, hey, racism's a sin. Stop that. He could have said that. And maybe the behavior would have changed, but he's not aligning Peter's heart. Paul said instead, you're forgetting the good news of grace, Peter. You're forgetting the gospel. God didn't have fellowship with you, Peter, based on the basis of your race and your heritage. You're acceptable to God, not because of all those things, but because Jesus gifted his acceptance to you. That's been gifted to you. So then how can you make distinctions on the people you sit with based on their race and culture. That's not how you got into this family of God. And besides, those other people, you don't need their approval. You already have God's. That's a very different 
correction. <laughs> we tend to tell ourselves all the time, oh, I messed up, uh, just do better. Change your behavior. Or how often with others do we give good advice, thinking that that'll help somehow? The gospel sounds simple. Jesus died and rose and gifted his acceptance to us. He paid the penalty for sin, and now we have the reward of acceptance with God because of Jesus. That sounds simple. But that work of Jesus, what he did, that's the power of God to save us. That's the power of God to save us from our sins, the penalty, and it's the power of God to continue to realign us and help us to walk straight on the Christian life path. He continues to save us from the influence and the power of sin in our lives. We tend to think of the gospel um, as sort of the thing that gets you in the doors of the Christian life. It's the thing, that's where you start, and then you go on to bigger and better things. That's how we tend to think of the gospel. But it's not just the start, it's the everyday. We think the rest of our Christian walk is up to us, but as Tim Keller puts it, the gospel's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. The gospel is everything, all the way to eternity. We always need Jesus. As Paul puts it a little bit later in Galatians, Paul says it this way, are you so foolish after having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? God did the work of saving you, and now you're going to continue to save yourself? That doesn't make sense. Going back to a DIY mentality or even a do-what-you-want mentality, when it comes to faith, just flat out doesn't work. We need God from beginning to end all the way through eternity. And so, when we're just trying to fix or ignore our behaviors... We're trying to be our own God. We're, we're not getting to the root of the matter. We're not exposing the lies that we're believing in any given moment. And we should be rerooting ourselves in the truth of the gospel. And that is what will save us. Because the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our lives come from the roots of our faith. They don't just exist just because that's what we chose to, get, to do in any given day. The fruit of our lives, the things that we experience, they come from the roots of our faith. And so where are you rooted? Where are we rooted? Are we rooted in lies that we believe or are we rooted in the truth of the gospel, the power to save us and to change us and to make us whole? Jesus was very clear in his own words that what defiles us proceeds from inside our hearts. And so the fruit of our lives comes from the roots of our faith. So here's the, here's the practical thing, and here's the thing you might want to take a picture of um, for your week, if it's helpful to you. Um, this is a common concept uh, called fruit to root. It's called the fruit to root concept. Um, and it's common. I just happen to be using specifically how uh, Jeff Vanderstelt lays it out uh, in his book, Gospel Fluency. Um, but essentially, the fruit-to-root concept is just a series of questions to help you identify what you're experiencing, the fruit of your life, your, your behaviors or your feelings, and then a series of questions that help you drive deeper down into why, 
why is that what I'm doing right now? Not just stop it, do better, but why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? And so even if you can't remember the specific questions, just remember it that way. It's, it's, it's going beyond what am I doing and exploring and asking deeper questions about why am I doing, what am I believing? And so let's just real quickly walk through, walk through these uh, quick questions. What am I doing or experiencing? What's the fruit that's going on right, right now in my life? Uh, these can be specific actions, like a habit. Why, why do I keep doing that? Or maybe it's just a feeling. Why, oh, I feel this way or that way. Just be honest about what is it? What, is, what are the things I'm experiencing? And then, going one level deeper down the trunk of the tree, who am I? Again, these are not, right, the, right now, these are not ideal answers. You're not trying to give the right answer at this point. Who am I? You're just being honest with yourself. And so a response to who am I might be something like, well, I should be in control, but I feel out of control. My life is out of control, but who am I? I should be in control or maybe it's something like, who am I? I've messed up, that's what I'm experiencing. I've messed up, I feel guilty, and so therefore I'm a failure. Or I should be the rule maker of my life, but that's being challenged. I'm frustrated, who am I? I'm the rule maker, aren't I the rule maker? Go a little bit deeper. What has God done? Again, not ideal right answers, you're just being honest. I'm, I feel out of, I'm out of control. I should be in control. You know what, God? Seems like you're not in control either. I've, I've messed up. I feel unlovable. God probably doesn't love me. Or I should be the rule maker. And what has God done? Well, he's being unreasonable. He's being totally unreasonable. And then all the way down to the root. So then who's God? Well, if he's not in control, he may as well be powerless. God's powerless. He doesn't love me. He, he's unloving. It's just who he is. Or he's absent. He doesn't care. I hope this is, hearing these things out loud are a little bit unsettling to you. But this is what we have to do, is to, to say the things out loud that we're experiencing and be honest so that we can flip the script. At this point, when you're down here in these areas, you're thinking deeply, and to take a cue from Kyle recently, if we had an enemy, these things that I'm saying right now, these are the exact things he would want you to believe. And we don't need more self-help to fix our behaviors, and we don't need to deny that they exist. We need deliverance. We need deliverance from these lies, because they're deeply rooted. We need truth and the power of God to save us. And so then, if we go to the next slide, all we do from here is we just go back up. We replace those lies with the truth of the gospel. We simply compare what we're thinking to what we know to be true in the gospel, what's true of God's character, going back up the tree with those same questions and answering them with what's really true. And you might ask, how do I know what's really true? Isn't it all subjective? Or how do I know I'm not being subjective? Um, this is where the Holy Spirit joins us. I know we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, but right here, this little turnaround point, this is where the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. And it's not just you 
anymore. The Holy Spirit begins to inform you and encourage you and remind you and confirm what's really true. That's a supernatural act that the Holy Spirit's helping you with. It's a real thing. And so you can even ask yourself, is the gospel means literally good news. Is the things I just said as I went down the tree, is that good news? Is that lifting me up? Is that lifting God up? Or is it tearing me down? Is it tearing God down? And hopefully the, the Holy Spirit will begin to show you, oh, that's not true. That's not true. And so we go back up. So who is God really? Who is he really? What, is he, what has he done to prove that? Has he proven who he is? Oftentimes, yes. <laughs> Jesus came from the throne of heaven to be with us here on earth and died and paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be free, so that we would be acceptable. Say these things to yourself. Remind yourself of the truth. And then what does that make me? Am I unlovable? No. Jesus proved it. I'm lovable to him. He loves me. Maybe I am unlovable, actually, but he loves me anyway. And then, there, and then finally, hopefully, what you begin to experience is this increasing different fruit, different feelings, different behaviors. Not that your issues magically go away, right? But I think what you'll find, spoiler alert, is a little list at the end of this book of Galatians called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not a coincidence that the things you begin to experience in your life in, in increasing measures are these things, this fruit of the Spirit's. And so I'll close with this, um, because the origins of my faith, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever told my story from the pulpit here. Um, the origins of my faith, the beginning of my faith journey, it's always my personal reminder that, uh, that I need God to save me, that I can't just pull fruit off and then put fruit on to my life. It doesn't work that way. And so just real briefly, I, I didn't grow up going to church. That's um, not a part of my uh, childhood and so when I was in high school, uh, and my, my dad got baptized, that was something, because that was new to me. I, why would you do that? What's going on? And then I watched as my dad's life transformed. And that was really impactful to me, uh, because it was real. It wasn't just something we did one day and then lived a different way later. It, his life changed. And so then the next chapter of my story and my faith journey was this really defined by seeking out, oh, I, I want to have this transform, transformative experience in my life. I want to follow Jesus, and I want to seek that experience. And so at the same time, though, I was also pursuing a dream to be a band director. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a middle school and high school band director. And I sort of set that up in my life as that's what success looks like. That's what I'm seeking. And so I climbed that ladder. I did everything I could, went to college, did all the things, and did everything I could to prove myself. Look, see, I can do it. I'm worthy to be a band director. And really what I was saying is, I'm worthy to be liked. Uh, do you like me? And I began forming this deep rut of performance. If, you, if you're in the arts at all, you, you probably relate to this. There's always, there's always a judges panel listening to your performances, and did you do that well? Nitpick, nitpick, nitpick. Are you good? Are you good? Am I good enough? I formed this deep root, this deep rut of my life of trying to prove myself and seeking the applause of others like my whole life was a performance. 
And then when I graduated and I arrived, I actually got the band director job. Instead of this experience of victory like I had hoped for, I found myself in this vicious cycle of more performance and still feeling like a failure and putting myself out there but still feeling totally alone. And so am I alone? If you go down that tree, I'm alone. Am I even lovable? Because I keep trying and I don't feel more lovable. Does God even care? Does he love me? Probably not. He's un he doesn't love me and I'm, I'm not good enough. Because, And that was my experience. What I needed most in that season of life um, and what I continue to need is the power of God to overcome those lies. Because that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Trying to change the fruit of my life without getting to the root of the matter was not working. I needed more than myself because my worst fear was actually true, partly. Though I attempted to stand out from everyone, I'm not better than anyone. No, you're not better than anyone. The truth is I'm no better than anyone. And in fact, I repeatedly fall short of even my own standards, let alone God's or others or what you might want me to do. Trying to earn love by doing whatever it took to get noticed. My roots were rotten. And when I began truly experiencing life-transforming freedom was when I quit working so hard, working so hard to be lovable. And I was saved by gospel truth, the truth that God loves me, not because I'm lovable, but because he's loving and he already did the hard work of proving it on the cross. I was working so hard to be lovable, but God already did the work. The work is done. And when I let go of that and grabbed hold of that truth, there was my experience of freedom. The fruit of our lives. If you hear nothing else, the fruit of our lives come from the roots of our faith. What in your life are you allowing to be misaligned? Where are you frustrated or worried or fill in the blank? And what's the, at the root of those experiences? Because the fruit of our lives comes from the roots of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, your word calls us blessed. Um, your word calls blessed the one who doesn't walk in step with the way of the world around us, in step with the lies, but whose delight is in what's true of you. Meditating on your truth day and night, Lord, would you find us as a people, as a community, would you find us meditating on what's true? Come, Holy Spirit, remind us of what's true. And make us, as scripture says, like trees planted by streams of living water, rooted in you, which yield fruit in its season and leaves whose leaves do not wither. Lord, among us, for those who are struggling, I pray that you would make your presence known. Um, thank you that all we need to do is come to you and that you have done the rest. Help us to believe that that you're in control even if it doesn't feel like it, that you love us deeply even if it doesn't feel like it.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Our confidence is in you. Amen.